Hello and welcome to Going Viral, the podcast all about pandemics. I'm Mark Honigsbaum, a medical historian and science writer. It's been quite a year for vaccine scientists. Vaccinologists have developed vaccines for COVID-19 in record time. But this is not the first time scientists have raced to develop vaccines against a new disease. In the 1960s, scientists faced a similar crisis over rubella, also known as German measles. If pregnant women are infected, and particularly if they're infected in their first trimester, rubella is just devastating on the fetus. Now, what happened in the early 60s was there was a historic epidemic of rubella. It just tore through countries and left in its wake tens of thousands of badly damaged babies and untold numbers of spontaneous abortions and stillbirths. The moment that epidemic made itself felt, there was clamor for a vaccine. That was the science writer Meredith Waldman, who's helping us to tell the story of the race to create the rubella vaccine. But first, we're going to hear from Stanley Plotkin, whom I spoke to down the line from his home in the U.S., He's been called the godfather of vaccinology. You've got so many awards, I don't know where to start. One that leapt out to me was you received the French Legion of Honor in 1998. I am rather proud of that because foreigners don't often get the Legion of Honor unless they've been in military action. Stanley Plotkin first encountered congenital rubella syndrome in 1962 at Great Ormond Street Hospital for Sick Children. Plotkin had joined Great Ormond Street as a resident from the Wistar Institute in Philadelphia, where he had helped develop a polio vaccine grown in germ-free cells from an aborted fetus. The experience fueled Plotkin's determination to make a vaccine against rubella, and his vaccine is now a key component of the measles, mumps and rubella vaccine, or MMR. But as we'll hear, the technology was initially viewed with suspicion, and it took several years for regulators to license Stanley's vaccine for human use. Now a lively 88-year-old, Stanley has witnessed huge changes in vaccinology during his long career. I was very fortunate. I I mean, of course, everything in life is luck. And I was very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. It all began when he won a place at the Bronx High School for Science at the age of 16 and encountered a novel called Arrowsmith, by the writer Sinclair Lewis. In Arrowsmith, the professor who instructs Arrowsmith talks to him about science. Science is like a religion of truth. That is to say, what is important is finding things that are true and not settling for anything less than that. You know, at age 15 in particular, those words struck my my heart, uh, and I have tried to to you to that. You you really grew up in an era before childhood vaccines. So what was that like? Did you experience um, many diseases as a child? Uh, well, I had, in fact, several uh, diseases which uh, which are today uh, preventable. The the earliest was pertussis, whooping cough. We call that. Uh, right, uh, which rendered me uh, quite ill. The second was pneumococcal pneumonia. I was um, in oxygen during that, and uh, in the absence of antibiotics, I had to recover on my own. I was three years old at that point. And then when I was 
nine, I believe, I had influenza, but a very severe influenza that put me into the hospital. I was comatose, and I came out of it with Bell's palsy, uh, which from which I fortunately have recovered. But I, I was, to say the least, quite ill, and the physicians were not sure that I would survive. Gosh. Well, I mean, this must have given you more reason to vote your career to finding vaccines for these diseases. Yes, definitely. Could you paint a picture for us of the sort of tools and the laboratory you worked in? I mean, what was the state of vaccinology when you arrived at the Wistar Institute? Uh, this would have been in the 50s, I imagine. That would have been 1957. Well, so what we had was cell culture. We were, because of cell culture, it was possible to cultivate uh, polio virus. And just uh, at that time, people were using cell culture to cultivate other uh, viruses like measles. And so it was very exciting because people were discovering new agents, um, uh, multiple new agents using cell culture. Of course, animals were still being used to passage viruses and to isolate viruses, but it, it was a time of great fermentation, if I could put it that way, that people had the tools uh, for the first time to really uh, work on viruses and to uh, attenuate them and so forth. So uh, I was very fortunate. I, I mean, of course, everything in life is luck. And I was very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. After several years at Wistar, I decided that I needed pediatric credentials. So I went to Great Ormond Street. And while I was there, uh, we began to see cases of rubella. There was a, an epidemic in Europe at that time. And uh, by that time, the Australians had discovered that rubella causes congenital abnormalities when it infects pregnant women. So th this was known, and I became very interested in rubella. So when I did come back, I opened the laboratory at the Wistar with the purpose of working on rubella. And indeed, the epidemic followed me to the U.S., and there was a huge epidemic, thousands and thousands of cases of rubella, in Philadelphia, 1% of all pregnancies uh, during that uh, year of 1963 uh, were uh, infected by rubella. So I saw many women who had been infected or who were afraid of, of having been infected, and then, of course, began to see the babies uh, with congenital rubella syndrome. What would be a typical case of congenital rubella syndrome? So uh, rubella in pregnancy, or at least in the first trimester of pregnancy, uh, can cause many di different abnormalities. It, in the most severe form, uh, infants are born with platelet deficiencies and uh, microcephaly, that is, their, their heads are small because their brains have, have not developed properly, and they can have cardiac defects. Uh, hepatitis, uh, the, the multiple bone abnormalities. There are multiple results of congenital rubella. And you can also be rendered deaf and blind. Uh, yes, the deafness certainly 
cataracts are very common, chorioretinitis. Rubella is perhaps the most, what shall I say, versatile congenital infection in the effects that it has on the fetus. Rubella is much more infectious than the coronavirus. There's a similarity in, in that up to a third of people infected will show no symptoms at all. Is that right? Yes, um, the reproductive number uh, is actually higher than that than that for coronavirus. Yes. So th- this this was a very widespread problem, and obviously a huge concern to young women. Um, you know, uh, thinking of conceiving, or you know, who've already were in the first trimester of uh, their pregnancies. Yes, and uh, indeed, it became a ma- major uh, public health uh, problem. But, uh, of course, uh, I had always had in the back of my mind uh, to work on uh, a vaccine, and in particular, of course, at that point, uh, rubella. Give us an idea of how you actually manufactured or or began experimenting and then eventually making this vaccine. Well, the the first uh, issue was how to cultivate the virus in cell culture. Uh, I decided that optimal cell would be a human cell. And uh, at that time at Wistar, uh, another uh, team was developing uh, cell strains from fetal tissue. And so I collaborated with them to make strains of cells that were human cells, human fetal fibroblast cells, uh, and then determined that the rubella virus would grow in those cells. I think, Stanley, we should very just briefly explain that um, your colleague at the Wistar, Leonard Hayfleck, had developed this cell line, hasn't he? This is a very famous cell line, W138. Yes. Uh, the, um, what, what Hayfleck was interested in was the lifespan of cells and whether uh, they would become senile in a sense. And indeed, he showed that after about 50 passages, you could no longer passage the cells because they had become senescent, uh, just like humans. Uh, So his interest was was that. But in um, looking at the cells, let's say at the 15th or the 25th passage, we tested their susceptibility to viruses and realized that many viruses would grow in those cells. Of course, human viruses would grow in those cells. And so it became, you know, it was an obvious thought for me to use those cells to uh, attenuate rubella virus. And it was a fortunate choice because it turned out in the long run that the other attempts to to develop uh, vaccines in, in other types of cells gave results that were not nearly as good in terms of the uh, safety and immunogenicity, possibly related to the fact that those were not human cells. So at any rate... <laughs> I spent the next years working on attenuation of rubella virus from a fetal infection in that fetal cell strain, WI38, and uh, eventually 
came to the point where the virus was attenuated, but still uh, immunogenic. You know, once you had done the basic studies, and what sort of trials did you have to do? Who did you test it on? And how long did it take to actually get it um, licensed and and distributed? So uh, I started testing in in volunteers, including one of my own children. (laughs) And uh, it seemed the result was satisfactory. And then I uh, went to the uh, Archbishopric of Philadelphia uh, because there was at that time an orphanage uh, in Philadelphia where uh, children uh, of many different ages uh, were, were, were kept. And I um, applied to the Archbishop for permission uh, to do a, a vaccine trial in, in those children. Uh, which uh, he uh, accepted after, of course, a lot of consultation. And so we we did a study in those children and found that the virus indeed was uh, attenuated, but that the children developed uh, antibodies against rubella, and that you know put us on the the final uh, development. The story was complicated by the other vaccines that had been developed. And so the dramatic endpoint was a meeting at NIH attended by literally by hundreds of people at which all three of the candidates were discussed. And of course, um, I presented my results as well. Uh, And the... (laughs) The interesting thing that happened there was that Albert Sabin uh, was was one of the attendees, and uh, towards the end of the meeting, uh, he uh, went to the microphone and made a statement in which he said that the strain developed in fetal cells should not be used because it could uh, possibly uh, cause cancer because it was uh, made in human cells and who knows what's in human cells. Uh, and of course, uh, this was quite a negative statement from my point of view. But being young and feisty, um, I insisted on going to the microphone after him. The chairman tried to shut me up, but the audience sort of called to him to let me speak. Uh, and so I said to Sabin that First of all, uh, the cells have been studied extensively at Wistar. They're from a normal fetus. There's nothing wrong with these cells. And the strain gives better immunogenicity than, than what we have heard from the other strains. And uh, I received an ovation. Of course, it wasn't for my personal accomplishment, but because the audience agreed with me that the cells w- were safe. That being said, the the industry people adopted the two other experimental vaccines, not wanting to take any chances, except for the Welcome, you know, Welcome Laboratory in the UK. And so Welcome uh, took up the vaccine and began to use it in Europe, uh, whereas uh, the other two strains were being uh, used. Uh, in the U.S. And then, of course, we had a period of time when when people were studying the different vaccines, and eventually the evidence built up that 
the strain which uh, which I developed called RA273 uh, had the best properties. It was more immunogenic. It was uh, perfectly safe, uh, and uh, the other uh, two weren't quite as good. They simply weren't giving as good uh, immune responses. So w- one one day. I received a telephone call from Maurice Hilleman at the Merck Laboratories, who uh, had been using the um, uh, the strain developed in African green monkey kidney cells. But the people who were doing comparative studies were telling him that he was wrong. <laughs> and so to, to Hilleman's credit, because it involved a considerable financial outlay, he asked me for uh, the RA273. And so Merck adopted the strain. The others fell by the wayside. And RA273 has been uh, now used by multiple companies uh, throughout the world. Your vaccine is the R in the MMR, right? Right. Um, just very quickly, when you were talking about, you know, um, the concerns of Sabin. I thought actually you were going to mention the fact that some people for religious or ethical reasons may have objected to your vaccine because it was developed in fetal cells. That Hayflick developed the, that cell line from a fetus that was aborted from a woman in Sweden. That's right, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Well, so that you're perfectly right. And uh, this gets into a theological uh, issue, um, which uh, I am not qualified to comment on, except to say that, in fact, the Vatican has considered the situation very carefully and essentially decided that because of the medical value, uh, you may use or give your children this vaccine. The sin is on the head of the developers, which I gladly accept. I mean, I, I don't mean to make light of, uh, of people's religious objections, but from my point of view, uh, I, I see nothing wrong, and therefore I have no regrets about having used the fetal cells, uh, which have been used for other vaccines as well. The good works resulting from the, those vaccines, I think, far exceeds any uh, uh, theological blemish uh, that there may be. Isn't there something marvellous, really, that cells from a fetus could help prevent congenital deformities in developing babies because of rubella? Yes, yes, you're right. It strikes me that that is part of the magic of vaccines, that we can manipulate cells and use them to do good, to improve health and well-being. Well, yes, of course, I agree with you. And Subsequently, as I uh, just mentioned, uh, those cells have been used for many other purposes, the development of vaccines, as well as uh, studies of senescence and, and so forth. They've been very, very valuable. For more about the race to develop the rubella vaccine, 
My producer, Melissa, spoke to the science journalist, Meredith Waldman. So, Meredith, do you want to introduce yourself? I'm Meredith Waldman. I'm a staff reporter with Science Magazine, and I'm also an author of the 2017 book called The Vaccine Race, Science, Politics, and the Human Costs of Defeating Disease. And this particularly focused on the race to create the rubella vaccine. Yes, it did. In her book, The Vaccine Race, Meredith tells the story of the Wistar scientists Stanley Plotkin and Leonard Hayflick who pioneered the technique of growing viruses in germ-free fetus cells. There is an ethical side to this and it would be interesting to discuss this. Stanley Plotkin makes it very clear that as a doctor he thinks that the medical technology and the medical development outweigh any kind of ethical considerations or religious and he's not religious. But other people would care to differ and, and obviously other people did. Can you sort of talk us through that? Sure, there were a few aspects of the ethics that deserve consideration. One is, what did he use in order to grow this weakened rubella virus in order to develop the vaccine? And the answer is, he used fetal cells that a colleague of his, Leonard Hayflick, had obtained from an aborted fetus, a different aborted fetus, and that fetus was taken without the woman's knowledge or consent. This was a woman who was a young mother in Sweden in 1962. Abortion was legal there, and her fetus was taken and transported to Leonard Hayflick at the Wistar Institute in Philadelphia, and he used self-replicating lung cells from that fetus to develop a clean and safe way of making vaccines. And those cells are used to this day by Merck to make the rubella vaccine. They can be frozen in a test tube and will, in quotes, wake up, even if you wake them up 50 years later and continue replicating. And so the fact that this woman who I call Mrs. X in the book was neither notified nor asked permission for her fetus to be used is one hopes something that would never happen today that regulations and laws do not allow for today. But that is an issue that is a live concern. And for people separately who oppose abortion on ethical grounds for any reason, there's of course a whole nother set of ethical concerns, which is, I don't want to take a vaccine that was developed using fetal cells. And interestingly, the COVID vaccines being developed today, several are produced in fetal cells. So that's not an issue that has gone away. And for people who see abortion as just not ethically acceptable, that's a real stumbling block. Then there's a third piece of ethics that comes up in the story of the rubella vaccine race. And it's how were these rubella vaccines developed in, in order to test them in human beings. And it emerges that Plotkin, the very first time he injected his then experimental rubella vaccine into human beings was into 
toddlers at an orphanage that was maintained by the Archdiocese of Philadelphia with the Archbishop's explicit consent. This was thought to be fine 60 years ago. Routinely captive populations of prisoners, of intellectually disabled children, of orphans, and the like were used for medical experiments. So Plotkin in doing this was not an outlier. It was the way things were done. And thank God it's not the way things are done anymore. Yes, I think that's important to say because uh, there were other examples of trials being conducted in this way for other vaccines, weren't there? Oh, other vaccines or even by Plotkin's competitors in the rubella vaccine race. You know, everyone did it with the blessing of the medical establishment and of the funding bodies and of the universities. It was a sort of an era of medical entitlement where it was the ends justify the means. Can we go back to the uh, WI38? This is the cell line made by Hayflick, who you also, I know, talked to for your book. He's been called a flawed hero. I mean, what are your thoughts around his work and, again, the ethics of that? It was completely normal that Mrs. X's fetus would be taken without her knowledge or consent in that era. I'm not saying it was okay, but again, he was hardly an outlier for using that fetus. He was extremely driven, extremely ambitious, extremely obstinate and persevering. And so he worked tirelessly to promote the use of these cells that he developed for vaccine making in vaccine making and often against the resistance of, well, at least here in the U.S., of authorities that handled vaccine approvals in the U.S. But he, you know, in a way, almost single-handedly changed vaccine making from something that was done in scads of monkeys who were imported. They had various viruses. Some of those hit out in their kidneys, but they would harvest their kidneys and use them to make polio vaccines and so on. And Hayflick simply introduced another cleaner, safer technology that relied on cells from one aborted fetus. So that's a huge contribution, just huge. Yes, and that's important. I mean, from Plotkin's point of view, he said that it gave good results, they were safe, and that's why I used them. It was the safest way that I could find to do this. Right, and it should be noted that others have since copycatted Hayflick's approach. I mean, not least the MRC, which by 1966 had developed a group of fetal cells called MRC-5 that are, again, widely used in vaccine making to this day. And they came from a single abortion in London in 1966. Hayflick had derived those from Mrs. X's fetus in 1962. So he was really a pioneer. Should we go back to Stanley's story? Because, you know, there were several other vaccine developers for rubella, but his was taken up by Merck, wasn't it? And do you want to just tell us about that? Yes, well, that was hardly a, a given because Plotkin, who's this sort of lonely academic scientist working on his own in a lab at the Wistar, versus Merck, which, you know, has this huge army of people devoted to developing vaccines, and it was rushing to develop a rubella vaccine. And another big company called Philips Roxanne was doing the same thing. And this Belgian company, RIT, they were all you know, heavily manned and very sophisticated with lots of vaccine experience. And so Plotkin was like David against these Goliaths. And he also had a political problem. 
which was the, the gatekeeper of the U.S. vaccine market, who worked at the National Institutes of Health, which back in those days was the vaccine regulator for the U.S., refused to consider any vaccine candidate that was made in Hayflick's human fetal cells. He was extremely conservative. He didn't like the idea of using a new technology. He was probably afraid that somehow if fetal cells were cancerous, then cancer could be passed to the vaccinees. There was no evidence of this, but you can't prove a negative. And that was an uphill climb for Plotkin and for Hayflick, who also lobbied to have these cells accepted by U.S. regulators. Now, on the other side of the pond, European regulators were totally accepting of this, including the World Health Organization, which quickly held a conference after Hayflick produced his cells, looking at how they could deploy them as quickly and efficiently as possible in vaccine making. So there was a real divide across the Atlantic. Anyway, Plotkin, because his rubella vaccine was made in these fetal cells, just was hitting his head against a wall with the National Institutes of Health. And so what happened in this race to develop a vaccine before 1970 was that in 1969, the other major companies all had their vaccines approved and Plotkin's was just left in the dark and the cold. There was no way it was going to get approved by this regulator at NIH. So you think, well, then why is it the R and the MMR vaccine? It's a long story, but it has to do with a very determined woman named Dorothy Horstman, who was the first head of pediatrics at Yale, which tells you something in the 1960s, and who had been watching Plotkin's rubella vaccine studies as he published them, and who saw that his vaccine was more effective in the sense that it generated more more virus-fighting antibodies, and that it had fewer side effects than these other vaccines. And in fact, one of the three vaccines, the one by, made by Philips Roxanne that was approved by U.S. regulators in 1969, had to be withdrawn within a couple months because the side effects that caused were so horrendous. So Dorothy Horstman at Yale looked at all these Plotkin studies, said, this is a better vaccine than the ones that NIH actually licensed. And she started knocking on the door of the vaccine czar at Merck, this guy, Maurice Hilleman, who to this day is the most successful commercial vaccine developer in U.S. history, although he passed away in the early part of this century. But he recounted to Paul Offit, another vaccine developer and academician who's very active today, late in his life, Maurice Hilleman did some oral history interviews with Paul, which Paul kindly made available to me for the book. And Hilleman says that Dorothy Horseman just kept calling him up and calling him up and saying, Merck should make Plotkin's vaccine. What are you doing? You should drop Merck's vaccine and make Plotkin's vaccine. It's better. And finally, he said something I can't repeat on this podcast. He said, oh, Dorothy, okay. And so it took sort of the course of the 1970s for that shift to happen. That happened, it did. And in 1979, Plotkin's vaccine became incorporated in Merck's MMR vaccine and has remained so ever since. It's also in vaccines made by GSK and other rubella vaccine developers. I'm very pleased that a, a strong woman has come into the story because we're talking about a lot of men here. Oh, there's lots of strong women in the story. I love the stories of the strong women in this in the, in the book. There's she, Dorothy Horseman's not the only one. I mean, you've met Stanley Plotkin and Hayflick. I mean, tell me about these guys. I mean, how do you see them? How should we remember them? 
Well, we should remember them for their tremendous contributions, and also as being very much men of a certain time with a certain sense of entitlement to patients' physical specimens and and undonated tissues, as it were. Um, but you know, I think their legacies are going to be very clearly um, with us in terms of for Hayflick, a, a vaccine technology that, you know, didn't exist until he pushed it into existence. And for Plotkin, this tremendously important rubella vaccine, which sadly is still not given universally. It only is given as a routine childhood vaccination in about two-thirds of countries. And as a result, you have around 100,000 babies born damaged every year by rubella. And that's a completely preventable occurrence. Is it possible to guesstimate how many lives may have been saved by this? It's not possible to estimate, but certainly tens of millions of lives, I think it's safe to say, have been saved. And certainly billions of vaccine doses have been distributed thanks to Hayflick's work, you know, promoting this new vaccine technology. And thanks to Plotkin and other vaccine inventors who, you know, created these vaccines at a time when childhood was much darker because of their absence. So you were painting a picture where actually there was quite a lot of competition, if I can put it that way, between different vaccine scientists and companies. Today, of course, we're seeing this extraordinary worldwide co cooperative effort to make multiple vaccines for coronavirus. Yes. And uh, the striking difference from my point of view, having, of course, lived through all of this history, is that when I started in the years that I've just recounted, there were essentially two ways of developing vaccines. One was attenuation, weakening of the agent, whether virus or bacteria, and that, that was very important and uh, successful in many respects. Uh, and the other method was to kill the organism, kill the bacteria, kill the virus, and use the, the, the killed organisms to immunize. Uh, what is remarkable to me, uh, as exemplified by the competition to develop vaccines against the COVID-19 disease, is the multiplicity of platforms now available that have been developed over the years. So, you know, from my point of view, I've lived through a revolution in vaccine development where we now have many different ways of developing vaccines. And so I see the future uh, through the optimistic uh, lens of multiple ways of doing what was very difficult before. Whether we can eradicate the SARS-2 virus or not, I don't think anybody can really predict at this point. But of course, that would be the ultimate goal. That being said, I could envision a situation where vaccines against SARS-2 would become routine. Children even would be vaccinated so as to maintain herd immunity and to prevent the virus from resuming circulation. So it may well be that the virus will persist uh, in different parts of the world and could be re reintroduced into the UK or the US. So it may be necessary to maintain an immune population for many years in the, in the future, perhaps indefinitely. Stanley, did you ever think you would live through a pandemic like this? No, I, I'm not that smart. 
<laughs> we have to realize that we have now a world population where people circulate from one end of the world to the other like, and, and, and can carry viruses from one end of the world to the other. So we have to be ready. And in this century already, we have had multiple examples, chikungunya, of Zika, of viruses that come from animals and infect humans and spread through human populations and become epidemic. And I don't see that stopping. So we have to be ready. I was looking at your short history of vaccination. You wrote with your wife. Yes. But you wrote uh, that the impact of vaccination on the health of the world's peoples is hard to exaggerate. With the exception of safe water, no other modality has had such a major effect on morbidity reduction and population growth. That seems to me to really capture why vaccines are so important and should really be celebrated. Well, I, of course, totally agree with you. When you look back at the history of the world, epidemics have occurred ever since civilization has brought people together. And those things will continue. And vaccines are obviously by far the best response that humans can make to biology, to the constant path of other organisms, parasites, so to speak, on on humans. And that will continue. We, we will never be completely safe from other organisms attempting to parasitize us. And vaccines are the way to prevent disease that can be destructive of civilization, such as happened in medieval times, such as happened in 1918, and such as is happening now. Well, thank you so much, Stanley. I'm, I'm very pleased for us, you um, were at that Bronx High School and had a teacher who fired your imagination for science. We're all the beneficiaries. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate it and uh, glad to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Going Viral. Stay tuned for more episodes of Vax and the Facts, where I'll be exploring more about the history and science of vaccines. You can find us on Twitter at goingviral underscore pod and on Instagram at goingviral underscore the podcast. I'm Mark Konigsbaum and my producer is Melissa Fitzgerald. This has been Vax and the Facts.